Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me element manager for the Montauk and the Sag Harbor offices, Tim Kelly. Hi, Tim. How are you? Hey, John. How's it going? It's going great, actually. Uh, I mean, it's been crazy. But before we talk about um, the Sag Harbor and Montauk uh, real estate markets, let's just uh, briefly talk about you. Can you give a where were you born and, and how did you get from there to here? I was born in um, Westchester County and lived right outside the city and, you know, went to school in Westchester and basically got a job, you know, out of college in the city. I used to work in technology for IBM and got involved in Hamptons real estate. You know, we used to come out here in the summer and I bought my first house out here instead of buying an apartment in the city. And that got me in the throes of, you know, sort of catching the bug for real estate. Um, I had bought a house and the agents came to me and said, you know, would you be interested in renting it? And the rental market out here is very lucrative. And that's how I started off in real estate out here. So wow. it's been, been, uh, you know, upwards ever since. I mean, this is probably going back 30 years now. And um, the market out here, you know, continues to propel itself forward where, you know, other markets I don't think have had the kind of um, demand through ups and downs in the financial markets that the Hamptons has seen. So that's, it's, that's it's, for sure. it's, a, it's a robust um, real estate market, you know, with, with um, which used to be, you know, very seasonal. And since, since COVID has been around, I think the, the seasonality of our market has disappeared. It's become a place for people to get away from um, congested areas and take advantage of, you know, being able to work mobile, and being able to, um, you know, take take their work to uh, to their homes and and still be productive. So, um, I think that that's that's driven the market out here. Yeah, and, and it's so true. I I believe what you're saying. Um, but what a year and a half it's been. Uh, were there any challenges, you know, for you during the uh, pandemic uh, as a manager and and also uh, doing open houses? Yeah, I just I think initially nobody knew this whole thing kind of caught everybody off guard and there was a about a month long pause in terms of people just didn't know what they were doing. And then we started to see, see the demand kind of um, just pick up and not really stop. Um, there was, you know, a market out here that is, is driven usually, you know, in the past, you know, people look for homes in the summer and we tend to put things in contract more in the fall in preparation for next year's summer market. Um, given time, it takes to close and time to renovate, you know, there's kind of a, a, a bit of a lag, but when, when COVID hit, um, there was incredible demand and the market, um, basically didn't stop all the inventory that was on the market. I'd say the majority of it sold through and it's brought us sort of to where we are today, where with the COVID vaccines, uh, at the beginning of the summer, people sort of thought there was an end in sight to what we went through. And now that's people are digesting whether or not through different variants, whether the, um, you know, the impact of 
being vaccinated or the ability to maybe get sick has changed the whole market again. So it's sort of picking up where people aren't going back to maybe the workplace as quickly as they thought. So um, that, that leads me to the, uh, the question. Uh, pre-pandemic, uh, people were looking for certain types of homes. Uh, what do you think now that it's past that point, what kind of uh, amenities are people looking for in homes? You know, I, I think prior to the pandemic, um, you know, one of the key drivers was always central location in the villages for, let's say, um, the most desirable or maybe the most expensive real estate would always be in the core, like Southampton, East Hampton, whatever village. And I think some of what we saw change was, is that the larger homes a little bit further outside the village that may or may not have had the buyers in the past, the, the demand was, was there for those homes, but they were took a little bit longer to sell because they maybe weren't in the premier location. And I think the big change that I saw is that homes a little bit bigger, a little bit further outside the village sort of were more in demand than some of the smaller ones that you might've seen in the village, just because they had more space. People didn't end up traveling or congregating and doing things outside the home. So they looked to their home as, um, as sort of a, a, a shelter, a, you know, a place to um, have the family and to have entertainment. So bigger homes a little bit further out um, became very desirable. And I, I think a lot of that inventory sold through. Right. That's so true. Um, why do you think Sag Harbor has become the sweet spot for uh, real estate, even for people who in the past would only consider south of the highway? You know, I think there's a couple trends that are happening. I think we're seeing, you know, the baby boomers um, who sort of may, may or may not have controlled, let's say, central, like trophy properties and Sagaponic and Bridgehampton um, and Southampton. They're, they're looking to um, downsize and it, it's sort of driven them into the Sag Harbor market with the desirability of the amount of waterfront um, is, is one of the things. And the second thing is it, it's more of a year round community in terms of Sag Harbor is, you know, doesn't have 27 running through the center of it. So it's similar to Southampton village. It's just, it, it just is, is more of a year round community. And I think that that those two things have really driven, um, driven the demand. And I think, you know, traffic is an issue. I think that there's, congestion um, in terms of density uh, along Montauk Highway. And there's other ways to get out of the Hamptons um, through alternate routes that make Sag Harbor also attractive. It's sort of in the center of a lot of where people want to go, you know, so depending on whether you're in North Haven or Sag Harbor, you can shoot over to Southampton, you can shoot to Bridge or East, and you're kind of equidistant between all of them. So I think all three, three of those things kind of drive desirability. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's very insightful. Uh, Tim, since you also uh, handled the Montauk area, um, Montauk has changed considerably since uh, the days of Cyril. Uh, can you give us an overview of the uh, Montauk market? I mean, I think Mar Montauk is very similar um, to Sag Harbor in terms of um, desirability where um, there just isn't a lot of options right now because there's no inventory. I think what we saw in the beginning of COVID was, you know, people always love to go to Montauk, but because it's so far out there 
And if it was a weekend place for you, it, it was just maybe too far for a lot of people. So it eliminated Montauk as a choice in terms of purchasing. And the key difference that happened with COVID was people didn't have to go back to New York or they see themselves working more remotely a few days a week. So Montauk really became um, a great option because they didn't have to like leave, you know, on a Sunday night and come in late on a Friday because you'd have to work your way through all the traffic or take the train all the way out. So one of the trends I saw was the middle market there, things like above 2 million, you know, and higher used to take a little bit longer to sell there. And there may not have been as much demand um, for specific properties because uh, it was just sort of harder to get out there um, unless it was, you know, something on the water or a very special property. And I think once we saw COVID hit, our high-end market there basically got stripped of all inventory and we're seeing prices go much higher because the geographic limitation of Montauk was sort of removed because people could just stay out there. Right. And not um, worry about commuting. Or- yeah. And, and it made it like much more manageable and it suddenly made that attractive. And um, the high-end was sort of priced a little differently. And I think that now that that geographic um, issue has been eliminated, we're seeing the high-end propel much higher and we're seeing incredible demand for homes, you know, four or five, six, seven million dollars that one may or may not have seen that volume of demand where there are multiple buyers or multiple people buying things um, off of old Montauk Highway with ocean views. Um, there's a there's a big market for that and there's no inventory and there's no new construction or at least the new construction that comes on sells through. So it, it, it too is a robust market and it too is very special geographically um, in, in terms of desirability, in terms of proximity to water, ocean, um, the Montauk side of it where it's on the bay. So, you know, you have a lot of water and you have a lot of unique attractions out there. Same thing in Sag Harbor. And I think that's what's driving um, those two markets um, where they may or may not have been as robust as a Southampton village or East Hampton. Um, it was maybe a, another alternative. I've seen them become like a primary alternative. Hmm. So it drives driving the market. That's very interesting. Yeah. Good insights again. Uh, before we talk about sales markets, let's talk about the rental market. How is uh, this year's rental market compared to last year's? You know, I, I think um, with, with the COVID driver, um, with the, the elimination of, short-term rentals uh, in terms of people didn't want to go in and out of properties due to um, health reasons. Um, it really solidified the agency side of the rental market where the real estate agents um, had properties listed. They dealt directly with homeowners and with clients and the rental periods are, we're seeing them much longer um, seasonally, monthly, you know, multi-month winter rentals, all different kinds of options. Um, the ability to connect renters uh, through agents provided um, a nice buffer and a comfort level with COVID because of um, health and safety issues. We we did see inroads into our market in the Hamptons through various online rental uh, websites, but those have had their challenges because you know, if somebody's doing rentals for a shorter period and it's being done through a website, 
and you don't really know, um, let's, let's say maybe the, the, in terms of the cleanliness or what you're getting yourself into, it helped having um, the, the physical agent population connect tenants with homeowners. There was a bit of a, um, the ability to, to provide a comfort level and um, a, a, a large inventory of properties um, that, that, that clients took advantage of. It was, a, it was a good connector where in the past, the rental market had shortened in length because people had so many options of where to travel. People you know, would go to Europe one week and then they'd come to the Hamptons for two weeks and then they'd go somewhere else because um, short-term rental companies provide a lot of options. And I think with COVID, jumping around was not an option. Right. So that, that solidified um, and also the sort of the escape from, from whatever primary market people were in, if they were in metropolitan areas or um, stuck in smaller properties that they owned, whether it be an apartment or a small house, families, you know, were spending more time together and not leaving. And the Hamptons has a lar- lot of large homes with a lot of features and amenities and people took advantage um, on all price points to rent out that inventory. So I think last year, the first year of COVID, we saw incredible demand, um, the highest demand ever. And I'd say most things were rented. Um, I I would say that those people continued through this summer. Um, I think there's a big unknown in terms of schools and where things are going. So people continue to rent. Um, It's the rental um, prices out in the Hamptons are not um, inexpensive and the quality of inventory is very high. So uh, in, in terms of a place for people to um, shelter in place, it provided you know, a, a great option, uh, a great base. And I think that that's what really drove our rental market. And we've seen it continue through you know, up until now. Wait, I can't predict the future, but right. the rental market's been extremely robust. Um, some people don't want to rent. They, those people bought. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, uh, Tim, but how can somebody get in touch with you to, if they have more questions? Um, you know, I can be reached at Douglas Elliman, uh on my cell phone, which is 917-856-2367. Or my email is uh, timothy.kelly at element.com. Tim Kelly, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life. And stay tuned, please, because we'll be right back after this short intermission. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me author, educator, and the founder of Cotton Real Estate on Cape Cod. Hi, Jack. How are you today? Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jack. Uh, you know, you've been doing real estate for quite some time. In fact, uh, you started Cotton Real Estate in 1974 from your college dorm room. Did you just pop out of your mom's womb and instead of saying mama, you said real estate? As a matter of fact, when I was born, the doctor slapped my mother instead of me and said, it's a realtor. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So how, how did you sell real estate from your dorm room? Well, truth be told, I started in May of 1974. It took me a year before I sold my first house. So I started my company in my dorm room that I moved to the corner of a plumbing supply warehouse on Cape Cod. After that, it was so pathetic, John. I used to make my own signs. 
<laughs> what, you mean like a sign saying open house? Well, like for sale, yeah. Oh, and back then, <laughs> yeah, and you know, back then, there was no desktop publishing. There was no anything. You had to buy plywood and saw it in 18 by 24. Oh, and my goodness. Paint it and get vinyl stick-on letters and try to get them on straight. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was uh, it was horrifying. Well, how did you uh, do? You still remember the, your first listing? Uh, how that took place? Just curious. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a house in uh, Sandwich, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I forgot the number, but it was on Old Main Street in Sandwich. I'll never forget the price. The price was twenty-one thousand five hundred dollars. It was a net listing, which of course. I've become illegal since then. The seller said, just get me 20000 So anyway, I left some room to negotiate. And uh, I probably spent all my commission on tickets, uh, speeding to show the house. But anyway. Um, you were getting stopped all the time? Yeah, because I kept, it was kind of a long way from where I worked from my office. So, um, but I took it because it was my first listing. Some guy believed in me. And um, so it, t- it took a while to get rolling, but. It got better and better, and then it got a lot better. How was the economy at that point? Was it? Uh, well, let's know. put it this way: <clears throat> I was um, anxious to get out of school and get started in real estate, so I took extra classes and went one summer and finished college in three years instead of four. And I think I was out of school for three weeks, thinking to myself, "What have I done? This is ridiculous." It was so great back at school; I could show up at <laughs> this place and get food three times a day. I had no worries except the next exam. And now I'm like, I'm you, like, you got to support yourself. For, right. I'm fighting for survival here and it's not going oh, well. Geez. I mean, interest rates were like 20%, as you recall. You had to get gas on odd and even days of the week, depending on your license plate. It was a disaster. Oh, a right, right, right. That was during the uh, Carter years, wasn't it? Yes. So basically, you know, <clears throat> because of the way the economy was, I picked up better habits that it might have otherwise. And because I knew everything, you know, I was 21, I knew everything. I knew <laughs> twice as much as I know now, as a matter of fact. I just never worked for anyone else first, which was a huge mistake. So I was like the Galapagos of real estate. I evolved my own way and basically built my business on direct mail and prospecting. I would type 100 letters every night with a typewriter We're back before the days of word processing. And I remember the biggest technological achievement that transformed my business was an IBM Selectric 2 typewriter with liftoff tape that could take your mistake right off the page. So anyway. Um, Those were the days, right? <laughs> we didn't. The funny thing is, we did not know how good we had it back then. Huh. Because yeah. now we have to sell 200 houses to make the same money we made selling 20 houses. Oh, interesting. interesting. So do you have a philosophy about real estate? Well, I do. And it's basically one that the National Association of Realtors used to use years ago, which is, under all is the land. I mean, the land is the very core of our existence. We depend on it for our food. We depend on it for the oxygen that we breathe. And we depend on it to build homes where we shelter ourselves from the, from the world. Hmm. You know, it's, it sounds like it, it was uh, pre uh, ecological uh i mean j- just the, the the concept sounds uh you know it starts with the earth and and the earth is yes what, it's what homes it, homes right. are sacred to me homes are sacred to me and if you you know trees are sacred to me if you i mean i began my career eight or nine years old building tree houses out in the woods and then you know back then in cape cod there was lots of construction taking place so i had 
an endless supply of scrap wood and whatever things weren't going well at my youth, which was fairly often, I would retreat to one of my little houses under a tree, up at a tree, beside a tree, <laughs> wherever. And as I would be in my little place, all would become right with my world. And that's a feeling I've never been able to get away from. And that's a feeling that I think everybody craves whether they can um, express it or not. It's at the core of each of us. And in fact, when Sotheby's bought my company back in 2005, the first thing I spent money on was a beautiful treehouse by one of the best treehouse builders in the country. I had it shipped across the country with a tree to my front yard where it still sits to remind me every morning on my way to work about that treehouse feeling and why I'm in this business and why it's not a career, it's a calling for me. You ever go up in that treehouse? The squirrels let me in from time to time. <laughs> oh, they've occupied it. It's, it's, it's ironic. Uh, I'd lived at one point in Shelter Island, and I, I, I can uh, commiserate with your thoughts about the treehouse. I built a treehouse for my daughter. Sure. And one day I said, hey, let's sleep overnight. And uh, I didn't, you know, sleeping on wood as compared to uh, sleeping on a mattress is a unique experience. Well, it's like sleeping on the ground. Yeah. Yes. But, exactly. you, but if you think back to that time in that treehouse with your daughter, it's, it stands out in your memory because of the feeling you had inside that little confined space where you were safe from everything that the world could throw at you. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that's what's at the core of all of us in our need for housing, whether it's a second home or a third home or a primary home. Right, right. It's there. It's there. It's a, it's the what's that saying? Uh, the home is the castle, right? Correct. It's your oasis. It's your, yeah, it's your oasis from the storm of life. Exactly. You're very well versed on a number of the towns and the areas in the Cape. Uh, are certain towns more attractive to buyers than others? Mostly the ones I work in. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know what? Um, <clears throat> Cape Cod is a rare and beautiful place. And each part of Cape Cod has attributes that stand out from other parts of Cape Cod. And it really boils down to a personal preference. I like the south side because I like the prevailing southwest breezes. I like the warm waters of Nantucket Sound. And I like the shelter from the storms that typically come from the northeast all winter long. Someone else, on the other hand, they prefer the outer Cape with the dunes and the wild ocean and all that. And others still prefer the north side, which is Cape Cod Bay, for other reasons. So, this, you know what? There are no bad parts of Cape Cod. It's amazing that the place is geographically fairly confined, but how radically different it is from area to area. Right. Now, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, is Cape Cod um, a secondary market? And has that changed uh, because of the pandemic? Well, Cape Cod has always been a secondary market when you get above like five or $600,000 in price range because typically year-round people, that's where they max out. There's exceptions, of course. But in the pandemic, yeah, none of the summer people went home. And a lot of the rentals that typically are rented for the summer season were rented for the winter as well. And one stark number is that we have this private school in my little village, and they doubled their enrollment. Wow. And they were... Students from Canada, from Connecticut, from New York, from New Jersey, from everywhere coming well, to Bjorn Cape Cod. Yeah. Well, that's another question I want to ask you. Um, your influx of buyers, are they are coming from the Boston area? And when you say uh, from Canada, are they coming from where are they coming from? Most of our buyers, 85%, come from Boston westward. There's a highway that wraps around Boston 
called Route 495 that wraps westward around the city. And about 85% of our buyers are some, somewhere inside that area. But when you're driving around here in the summertime, you do see a lot of plates from other states in New England as well. Right. And let's face it, if you're going to be, I mean, I know you're from a rare, beautiful place as well, but I have to say, I mean, nobody likes a pandemic, but if you have to have one, I have Cape Cod was an incredible, blessed place to be unless you're owning a restaurant, I guess. Mm, exactly. Exactly. You're a best-selling uh, real estate author and um, the books you've written two have these compelling titles. One is the 12 secrets of luxury home buyers know that you can use today. So um, what, what can you share a couple of those secrets for um, luxury home buyers? Well, you know, I deal with in my marketplace, I deal with a lot of wealthy people and I've learned a ton from them, which has got me through all the major downturns and recessions I've been through in my 47 year career. And so I try to put the lessons into play and to have other people learn from them as well. But on the buy side, to do your research, don't overinvest. Just because you can get a mortgage of X doesn't mean you need to get a mortgage of X. 80% of X is probably a better idea. I tell my kids, all my older kids all the time, I've never met anyone in my career who got into trouble from having too little debt. Hmm. Yeah, very good uh, advice there. How about um, with sellers? Uh, On the sell side, <clears throat> understand that your home is an investment. And even though you have no interest in selling your home today or maybe next week, wealthy people always keep their home in perfect condition for the most part, sell ready, market ready, show ready, because they understand it's an asset and typically the cornerstone of their financial well-being. Fascinating. Um, any other secrets that you want to share or you want to save that for the, uh, the people to buy on Amazon? Well, they can buy them on Amazon, but the main thing is really be maintain, maintaining your property, understanding that it is an investment, even though you're living there. Don't overinvest in it. Always have a long-term horizon. Your home is not an ATM. That's one of the biggest ones I learned from earlier downturns. A lot of people treated their homes like ATMs. But I'm, I remember people who were refinancing every six to nine months and pulling money out. You know, the, the, the best thing you can do in your, for your own financial well-being is to make a plan to pay off your mortgage on your house. I don't care. I, I was a finance major in college. I know the power of leverage. I know the power of, you know, interest rate playing, but having your home where you and your family reside free and clear is an amazing feeling that you want to experience as soon as you can. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now uh, we've got a few uh, seconds left um, on uh, you have something on one of your blogs called the home improvement rates of return. Can you give us a brief uh, in 20 minutes, uh, 20 seconds time? Uh, what, what that means? In other words, uh, you were talking about like one of the things is the entry door. Um, yes. You know, I think I lost you for a second. Yeah, I, but I, anyway, I, I heard that, right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so here's the thing, market preparation is critical. And when somebody comes to your door, they are forming opinions of you and your house in the 45 seconds it takes to walk from their car up the front walk to the front door. So, for example, if your home is coming on the market, you want to have a door that's clean, no peeling paint or faded paint for that matter. The light to the right-hand side of the door 
should be free of bugs and other gross things. The doorbell shouldn't be cracked. I mean, it should be clean and welcoming. I don't tell people they have to spend a lot of money to get their home ready for the market. They just need to make their home look loved to get ready for the market. And that's 90% of that is clean. Right. Sounds great. How can somebody get in touch with you, Jack? If they have any questions. The best way is, yeah, jack at jackcotton.com is my email address. Jack Cotton Realtor is my realtor website, jackcottonrealtor, all one word, dot com. Fantastic. Jack Cotton, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher, Real Life Broadcasting here in the heart of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. If you'd like to hear this show again or other podcasts, go to WLIW.org forward slash radio. Thank you for sharing your time and don't forget, have an awesome journey. You have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM, Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at WLIW.org radio. Mm-hmm.